This is no podcast music. Where's the NPR stuff? Marching band. Come on, man. The Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. Coming up on the program today, capital chaos, the riots, the impeachment, the possible trial, or will it happen? And what's going on with the election irregularities? It's all coming up. Plus, Robert Barnes of Barnes Law on the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. He is, he's got his finger in every pie I can imagine in personal life as well as in public life. He served as an attorney for the elections stuff going on in the state of Georgia. He has some thoughts on what happened there as well as the election irregularities we keep hearing about. Plus, he has some insight into what happened on the Capitol in the riot last week. And you'll want to hear this because his is not the typical take that you might hear. I'd also like to mention that he's also Mike Strickland's appeals attorney. So you'll want to stick around for some of his insights into that case as well. And much, much more cancel culture, big tech, and uh, much, much more on the Adult in the Room podcast. First off, though, I have to tell you that the the House, at the time of this recording, the House has impeached the president for the second time. And if you ever wanted to see naked partisanship, the likes of which is unbridled, it's this. This is a, astonishing. To blame the president for inciting a riot when the riot was going on while he was still speaking. And there is some question about that, which I will flesh out for you in a PJ Media article coming up on the day that this drops uh, for the podcast. This podcast is going to come out on Thursday. So I will make sure that you have, at least in your hot little hands, the actual timeline of what happened at the riot, because it's very important. You never go to trial without a timeline, right? You'll need this one. By the way, they went to, quote unquote, trial the impeachment without such a timeline. They just are so eager in their hatred of Trump to go after the guy. Now, you might think he is odious. And I understand that. He explodes the norms. We get it. He's been sent into the government to take names and break things. Got it. Who is doing the things that are out of the norm? I would submit to you that the House and the Senate are doing that very thing on the Hill in Washington, D.C. I mean, I'm sorry, impeaching a president once for something ridiculous is one thing. That was embarrassing for the Democrats. Now another to try to hang on him as he's going out the door. The blame for a riot, which was all arguments suggest, was well under planning, well before any rally started. The president, did he know about the so-called QAnon connection? Uh, He knows who QAnon is. He knew more than I did. I have to look it up and figure it out. Uh, Who who is QAnon? I think it's a scam. It, It appears to be some psyops deal. But nevertheless... Here is what Mitch McConnell had to say after the House went ahead with impeachment. And they got some Republicans to go along with it because they were so scandalized by anyone who would call themselves a Trump supporter breaking and entering into the Capitol. 
It was. It shocked the sense. It shocked the conscience. It did. You heard our episode last week. You know how I feel about that. It was absolutely ridiculous. And President Trump's rhetoric sometimes is flatulent. It just goes everywhere. It's uh, this and there and that. and and uh, But I have to tell you, uh, check out my story about what he had to say at the rally. And then tell yourself, which of these words would make you riot? And the fact of the matter is, none of them would. But you go. You read my piece. Figure it out for yourself. And then read another piece I did. Please. It should be in the show notes. Kenny is so good about doing exhaustive show notes. Good God, this guy's amazing. So go ahead and look at the show notes. And by all means, subscribe to this podcast. Give it five stars. Give it a great rating. We have to play the algorithm game, folks. That's the only way we can do it. And especially in light of what has happened over the past few days of the big tech attempting to cancel President Trump and wipe him out as if he never existed on any uh, anybody's platform. You've got to know that I ask you this because I need you to play the algorithm game with me. You may hate this program. Antifa does. And you know what Antifa does? Antifa goes and they give it a one star. Look, if you don't like a podcast, do you keep listening to it? No. If you want to screw around with somebody, you give it a one star. That's what you do. And that's what they're doing. So just wipe them out, neutralize neutralize them. And by wipe them out, I mean wipe out their bad with your good in terms of ratings for the podcast. It's just a little commercial. I'm sick and tired of being canceled. I got canceled by Zazzle. I've told you this because Antifa got on the horn and there got a little attention for my fantastic Antifa action figures and they decided to cancel them. Now, now I don't like to sound like a whiner. So I've talked to you about this before. I don't want to be a whiner about it. I'm just going to go succeed and triumph elsewhere. But you need to know about it. They're out there. They're prowling and they just want to cancel anybody who disagrees with them. It is astonishing to me that a political party which remained neutral or or subservient to the people actually committing riotous violence over the spring, summer, and fall are now suggesting that it was somehow a bridge too far to go after the seat of power in the Capitol. Yes, of course, it was absolutely wrong. It was outrageous. But unprecedented? No, it's not even unprecedented for that. They let off. They gave uh, pardons. They, the Democrats, gave pardons to people who had actually bombed the Capitol. That's your buddy Bill Ayers and his buddies at Weather Underground, as well as uh, the FALN terrorists, people who actually bombed the Capitol. And these guys attacked the Capitol. And what they did was not right. And I would like to say it was wrong. It was wrong. But you will not hear any Democrat say that all of the arson, looting, riotous behavior, mayhem, terrorizing that happened over the summer and last fall, you will never hear them say it was wrong. And I say terrorism, and I don't use that lightly because we all know what real terrorism is. And I will tell you this, when you are walking down the street and you are the only people on the street and you're being violent and you are shouting epithets and you are telling people that you are going to burn them in their homes as they sleep. That is an act of terror. 
It's words, definitely. But when you have a group that actually backs up their, their words with action, you better listen to them. You better listen to them. And that's exactly what BLM and Antifa did last summer to people living near a police association or police headquarters. Precinct, more accurately. That's what they did. I hate to yell at you. I, I mean, I hate to yell. But here's what Mitch McConnell had to say about the impeachment vote. And of course, he gave this oxygen. So which makes this statement you're just going, okay, which Mitch McConnell are we listening to here? Official statement by Mitch the Turtle McConnell. U.S. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell issued the following statement regarding the Senate schedule. You know, that's how hackneyed the impeachment is. It ain't even going to make it officially when Trump's still in office. That's how hackneyed this is. The House of Representatives, he says, has voted to impeach the president. The Senate process will now begin at our first regular meeting following receipt of the article from the House. Given the rules, procedures, and Senate precedents that govern presidential impeachment trials, there is simply no chance that a fair or serious trial could conclude before President-elect Biden is sworn in next week. You don't say. The Senate has held three presidential impeachment trials. They have lasted 83 days, 37 days, and 21 days, respectively. Even if the Senate process were to begin this week and move promptly, no final verdict would be reached until after President Trump had left office. This is not a, this is not a decision I am making. It is a fact. The president-elect himself stated last week that his inauguration on January 20th is the quickest path for any change in the occupant of the presidency. Yet when he wasn't egging them on on the side, uh, you know, uh, on the sidelines. In light of this reality, I believe it will serve our country best if Congress and the executive branch spend the next seven days completely focused on facilitating a safe inauguration and an orderly transfer of power to the incoming Biden administration. I'm grateful to the offices and institutions within the Capitol that are working around the clock alongside federal and local law, office, uh, law enforcement officials to prepare for a safe and successful inauguration at the Capitol next Wednesday. And BT Dubs, that inauguration has also been highlighted as a place and time that there might be more unrest. Now, is that President Trump's fault? Jake Tapper on Wednesday said that at, in a question, actually more like Tuesday, excuse me, talking to former disgraced FBI director James Comey, he said these words to the effect, gee, do you suppose it was the speech he gave on last Wednesday that was the actual incitement? Or do you think it's his, his rhetoric of the past few months? So now we're going to criminalize First Amendment behavior by a president of the United States. I, I have to say, this is an outrage. They think we're that stupid. In Federalist 66, uh, let's see, is Alexander Hamilton wrote that it was a very difficult thing to make it easy, if you will, to impeach a president. Because when you do that, you are allowed to bring impeachment 
for any political whim whatsoever. It must be difficult. If you want to talk about somebody breaking the norms, as the left continually says that Donald Trump does, then you need look no further than the leadership of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and their buddy, the minority leader over in the Senate for the time being, Chuck Schumer, to find out what norms have been blown up. Indeed, they have been exploded. They've they've attached Semtech and had a long fuse and decided to totally obliterate not just the process of impeachment and making it look like it's just a uh, simple thing because they've cheapened it so much, but rather they have wanted to absolutely disgorge the United States of America of, of anything Donald Trump. And they are cheering on big tech as they do it. This is frightening, absolutely frightening. You're going to deplatform Donald Trump because of a speech he gave last Wednesday when he did not incite violence. Whatever happened to the First Amendment anyway? And I'm not talking about tech platforms and the fact that they're private companies and go build your own platform and go build your own app and go build your own server farm. Yeah, good luck with that. I mean, we thought, hey, we thought you guys were acting in good faith uh, over there at Amazon. We thought you guys were acting in good faith. No, they just cut off Parler. They cut off Parler on the Apple and Google stores. When you've got all of those large entities among the largest companies in the world who have decided to turn their back on you because they don't like your speech, you've got a problem. Worse, you know what's wrong? When politicos gang up along with big tech and their oligarchs over there and they say, yeah, you're fine. They don't understand that they're next. We don't know how and when. We don't know where. We don't know under what circumstances. But at some point in time, somebody's going to be in control and be able to say, you know what? We really want Nancy Pelosi deplatformed because of what she said. I mean, if you were going to deplatform based on the idea of incitement, wouldn't you have deplatformed Maxine Waters when she was literally calling for people to go after Republicans and Trump supporters as well as Trump? Wouldn't you deplatform Ayanna Presley when she gave examples of the fact that she wanted more people in the streets, more dysfunction, more chaos? Last summer, at the time, the riots were occurring. You need look no further than Nancy Pelosi, who did the same. I can't believe there aren't more people in the streets. She has had a lit fuse in her mouth attached to a bomb for literally years now. She says the most untoward things that are specious in nature, lies indeed. And she gets away with it. She's not deplatformed. But trust me, somebody's going to be able to pull the trigger on that. And I don't mean a literal trigger on a gun. If you think that, you're an idiot. Somebody's going to do this to the leftists. I don't know under what circumstances, I don't know why it would happen. I'm just saying that if they can do it to us, if they can do it to me on Zazzle and um, who knows what other platforms, they can do it to you and they'll do it. to They'll come around. It will swing the other way. And it's sad. And I know I sound sort of spun up. Fine. I am spun up. You should be, too. And I don't mean go out and riot because nobody ain't nobody saying that. I, I, I except Nancy Pelosi, Ayanna Presley, and, and Maxine Waters. So now if you want to really get the get the nitty gritty on what's going down on on big tech, 
on the election, on the Strickland case, and on other things that um, the Capitol riots, the timeline, stick around because you're going to want to hear what Robert Barnes of Barnes Law has to say on the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. Robert Barnes, thanks so much for being on the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. Now, the Capitol March has led to the impeachment of the president as we speak on a th- on a Wednesday. And I would ask you that what is your take on on all of these uh, incidents that have happened so quickly and, and basically just crammed through? Yeah, I mean, the. Uh, it's another misuse and abuse of impeachment, and it shows it makes a mockery out of what Congress claimed they were doing last week when they said they had to defend the Constitution and thus could not allow an election contest when there are many good constitutional arguments for such an election contest. And then they turn around and make it clear that was all just political nonsense because they turn around and impeach, misuse and abuse the impeachment clause in a way it was never intended uh, to punish speech in violation of the First Amendment, which Congress is as prohibited from doing as anyone, uh, and the president is as protected as anyone. So it's a it's a double whammy because it's a it's an illicit impeachment in violation of the First Amendment. And uh, you know, Jonathan Turley, liberal professor, uh, has the same position. Uh, Alan Dershowitz, liberal professor, has the same position. So it's a position that people that respect the rule of law across the board have. It's just in the world of never Trump and in the world of uh, the Democratic Party currently, uh, the Constitution just doesn't matter. The president does have a First Amendment right to speak and say anything that is not an incitement to riot or other things. Did he incite anyone to riot on Wednesday, January 6th? Absolutely not. I mean, there's a but-for causation problem at the outset. The story, the riot started while he was still speaking. He had, you know, he was only about halfway through his speech when the people that were storming the Capitol were storming the Capitol more than a mile away. So his speech could not have caused the riot, given the riot started before his speech was even finished and was being done by people who hadn't listened to it and had planned it long beforehand. So the so as a simple matter of causation, he can't be blamed for it. Secondly, uh, everything he what he called for was peaceful, patriotic protest, not any form of storming the Capitol or any form of violent action. Uh, third, he's had a long four or five year history now of having lots and lots of rallies where there has been little to no violence by his supporters. Uh, you know, over, almost over a thousand Trump rallies of one type or another over the last five years. Uh, very, very little violence of any kind by Trump supporters, while there has been massive violence against Trump supporters. Uh, and so the idea that he would either anticipate, foresee, or want that to occur is simply not reasonable under the evidence. And then lastly, how does it benefit him for them to discredit him and discredit his election contest by raiding the Capitol? That makes zero sense. It's the same. It shows that how much Trump hatred is driving this interpretation because people are trying to tell you two things at once, that Trump's a, you know, uh, an idiot and a buffoon and that he's so criminally secretly persuasive that he can dog whistle to a crowd that hasn't even heard his speech that's already started to riot before the speech is even finished uh, by someone who does not profit from that rioting occur. In fact, the people who profit from this are his critics. Well, that's for sure. Uh, I would ask you to give me the timeline on 
uh, the the riot because the rally vis-a-vis the riot, because as I look at the timeline, the riot supposedly, the breach of the Capitol and uh, the, whatever violence there was there occurred two hours after he was done. Is that's not true? No, that's not true. So what happened was they began to breach the outer security of the Capitol at Capitol Hill at 1245. Trump was speaking, uh, didn't finish his speech until 115. The uh, in fact, they had already breached the inside of the Capitol. All the like four categories of security outside the Capitol. They had breached all of them and were inside the Capitol at 103. This was being filmed live uh, by people like Elijah Schaefer and others. Uh, the New York Times finally confirmed yesterday, they admitted, they acknowledged this timeline. Uh, Trump didn't finish even speaking until 1.15, and it, take, it took about an hour uh, for his the people at that rally to get all the way down to Capitol Hill. The, and those people, by the time they got down there, they were being waved in to the Capitol by Capitol Police. There's been different explanations as to why that happened. But when they got there, they had no 95% of the people stayed outside. They were singing. Many of the people had no idea what was happening inside because their phones were blocked. Uh, and so they went or they weren't paying attention to their phones and they didn't even know anything had happened until they got inside. They had no idea they were being accused of participating in a riot when they simply sat outside at a place that had a petition to protest and had no clue what was taking place inside. So the and there was in I was sitting in the chief of staff's office of a high ranking official in the Trump administration. They had no idea until several hours in of what was happening. And the contrary to what has been laid out, the president did actually ask for the National Guard to go in. In fact, he had been more in favor of that beforehand. Uh, but the mayor of D.C. didn't want National Guard present uh, at the Capitol in any major degree and only changed her mind belatedly midway through the whole process. So the entire riot process was planned weeks in advance, had nothing to do with Trump's speech. None of the people who saw or were there at Trump's speech participated in the riot. It all occurred uh, while he was still speaking. That is stunning. I heard you say that, and I just wanted to double check on the timeline. I did uh, look at a timeline by USA Today, not acknowledging when this started and the and the timeline that you used at the 1245, the riot had begun and the breach of the Capitol had begun. Um, you were in Washington, D.C. Did you happen to see anything? Only when I mean, we were watching and I was watching in this chief of staff's office on a uh, live video loop. And most of what was being shown was only outside. Not inside the, uh, the there was not a heavy media presence there that day, um, and the people that were inside was a range of photographers, and then the guy who I think got the best footage was Elijah Schaefer, but a lot of that didn't see until I, I got back after because there was a curfew in place. I left the offices just a little bit before the curfew, got home, and then saw what had happened. But the uh, and I knew the president had requested National Guard several hours before because I was in the room when they were discussing it, uh, discussing the fact that he had ordered it. So the uh, and somehow that information has been falsely relayed. They've tried to portray that he had nothing to do with it, didn't support it, opposed it. That's all nonsense. Anyone who knows Trump knows that he's a law and order guy. The idea that he would be in favor of any of this is just it requires people to have a deranged view of Trump to believe that he would want this or could foresee it or invited it or requested it or supported it. He actually said during his speech that he had imposed stronger measures against people who went after federal monuments and talked about there being a 10-year prison sentence for such 
and the crowd cheered him when he said that because he said it in conjunction with the Washington Monument, Lincoln Memorial, and the Jefferson Memorial, and how the left wanted to take the names off of those memorials and how he didn't want that to happen and how he had gone after the left, in this case, uh, over the summer and got went after them uh, with higher penalties uh, going against uh, for, for vandalizing statues and that sort of thing. And the crowd cheered. Oh, absolutely. And, and the there were people there, 90, uh, well, f- first of all, many of the people who attended the speech did not take the march all the way down to the Capitol. Many of them just went home. Uh, the, there, there was, you know, the range of number of people was between, it was around half a million of one type or another heard the speech that were present. Uh, probably one in five, about a hundred thousand, maybe max tried to walk down to the Capitol. Uh, many, when they got there, just left anyway. There was it, the, the scene just seemed to be a celebratory scene. You know, the people that were there that I know they're on the ground had no idea it was anything other than just a fun rally petition protest. Um, they, you know, they saw people up on the Capitol steps and the rest and just thought that was part of it. Uh, many of the people that were there that day had never been to the Capitol before. So they had no idea what was normal versus abnormal. Most of them had no idea what was ta- had taken place or what was taking place on the inside. There were a few that uh, once, uh, Alex Jones was there and once he saw and got word that something was happening inside, he was telling people to stay away. Don't go inside. Don't go further inside. Make sure there's, you know, don't act like Antifa or BLM or do anything that could be used to hurt the president. So the idea that any of the supporters of the rally, any of the uh, the organizers of the rally or the president himself had any interest in this occurring is just requires a complete denial of common sense. So the uh, the people who profited from this are the critics of the president, uh, which does raise questions about what did Pelosi and McConnell know? Because apparently they were briefed on security risks and did not take protective action themselves. They later blamed the sergeant of arms and other people. But you have to wonder what they knew and didn't know. Uh, the uh, Why did the FBI National Office apparently contradict FBI Virginia and FBI New York, which was warning of a problem, uh, according at least to what Capitol Police have said, that they were told by uh, FBI that they didn't need a heavy security presence there that day. Uh, then the FBI has given contradictory statements at different times is about what they said or didn't say. And so you have a lot of, I mean, I, I found it extraordinary when I saw the lit footage later, having been in DC many times for high security events, I found the, I mean, the Capitol police has over 2000 cops. The, uh, and of course the national guard was easily available too. And of course you have all the federal law enforcement in town. So the, uh, so the, the very light security present was a presence was extraordinarily unusual, and it uh, again it, it, who this benefited from, you know, was uh, the critics of Trump, and the so you, you, I think there is worthwhile investigation as to what happened and why it happened, but I think the least culpable culprit is Donald Trump. Who are the people doing it, and why would the FBI hide the ball on that? Two possible, well, three possibilities. One is, I mean, the the institution that the president really has been at war with or has been at war with the president since his campaign, probably more than any other, is the FBI. 
I mean, it was the FBI that did all the illegal criminal investigation, illegal counterintelligence investigation, illicit spying, false leaking. It was all high-ranking members of the FBI who did that. So you have an institution that has been, frankly, at war with the president from the inceptions that made sure that no criminal prosecution or any kind of civil punishment occurred to any of its members. I mean, really quite extraordinary. Uh, Peter Stroke, Lisa Page, Jim Baker, James Comey, Andrew McCabe, they've all been rewarded since they've left. Not only have they never been criminally punished or civilly prosecuted in any way, they've received lucrative book deals, media deals, professorships. So the idea that they're allies, I mean, remember, almost every high-ranking member of the FBI was put into position of power promoted by one of those people. Um, and so the their incentive to hurt the president is off the charts. Uh, that's part one. Part two, they falsely said that they had investigated and vetted election fraud when clearly they when everybody knew they couldn't have just from a time perspective. So the they were trying to step on that possibility. And the third, there are still uh, widespread suspicions by a wide range of people that the primary principle culpable party for instigating and inciting the uh, insurrection, as they want to call it, really just a riot, was the QAnon movement. And every and there's been a lot about the QAnon movement that looks has the trademarks of intel operators of some type, uh, whether current or former. And there's given the FBI had put QAnon on its radar several years ago, it's hard to understand why the FBI or how the FBI nationally did not relay that in security intel information from the QAnon boards warning of this occurring for the last or promising it to occur over the last several weeks. And you have to wonder whether or not, given what we've seen in the recent Whitmer indictments, whether or not there was some entrapment that took place, whether or not some high-ranking FBI members were involved in instigating, inciting some aspect of the QAnon community, because it's hard to believe they didn't infiltrate it. People can go back and research the history of COINTELPRO. If there's a long, notorious history of the FBI doing this, or just look at the recent Whitmer case, where the defense attorneys have already raised the defense of entrapment. Um, and so you have to wonder whether the reason why they hid information and in intel is maybe it was something as minor as, I'm not going to say minor, but uh, as not as nefarious as simply wanting to hide the involvement of informants in, 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 uh, in inciting and instigating this at some level. Uh, or maybe it could be even more culpable involvement. But Yeah, the, the Whitmer case, I remember reading the indictment, and it sounded like they had people inside trying to set these guys up, just like they do with the uh, Muslim terrorists after 9-11 as well. I mean, there's definitely an aiding and abetting kind of a situation there. There was the Christmas tree bomber in Portland in which they had him. Uh, they, they contacted him. He contacted them. And then he they made sure that he bought all the bad stuff and put together the bomb. Uh, so... Uh, so he was clearly intending intending to harm people, and it's all on him. But you're saying that such a thing happened in the Whitmer situation, where we had those guys who uh, who threatened her her life and were planning some sort of op. Oh, exactly. And what you had was some very marginal internet folks who it, it's not hard to infiltrate. I mean, you, you go back to the the Minneapolis case years ago, and in, involving the RNC. A lot of the so-called terrorism cases, terror cases over the past 20 years, when you dig into them, you find that they were people who did not have any plot at all 
until the feds got involved. Right. And at some point, that smacks more of entrapment than real investigation. Mm-hmm. And the, there's no question that you can get a lot of people to do and say dumb stuff um, if, you, if you infiltrate them effectively. And the reality was, I also believe, if the president had been given an accurate intelligence report that this was a high risk, he would have made protective actions himself because the last thing he wanted or needed was anything that could undermine his election contest or his future election prospects by having something like this occur. So it's it's the core problem with accusing him of, of incitement is when he doesn't want it to happen. How do you incite something you don't want to happen? And so it requires people with a denuded, diluted view of them in order to be able to suggest this about them. The people who were there inside, I noticed, and it was because it was uh, pointed out by people online when they saw the Elijah Schaefer tape as well as other live streams, was that the people who were inside and stealing stuff and purloining Nancy's podium and that sort of thing were all wearing brand new Trump merch. And some folks decided that this was just a real odd thing. Others said, oh, that's being sold on the streets of Washington, D.C. all the time. No wonder they'd want to gown up and look like uh, the Trump supporters. Some people saw something more nefarious. Do you know anything about that? What we do know is that there are BLM members and Antifa members or those that have been identified associated with them seen uh, and and in some cases arrested that day. The question is how many? Now, I do think uh, in addition to that, there's been people that associate publicly with the Proud Boys. Now, here's an interesting tidbit. They prohibited the founder and the or well, the current organizer, uh, the head of the Proud Proud Boys from being president in D.C. Right. And that now Which looks is outrageous. Little, it now looks a little more peculiar because if he had been there, maybe he prevents this from happening. Um, so what you had was a lot of discussion on QAnon boards of this activity. And that usually is going to involve a mixture of people. It's going to it's some instigators, some infiltrators, some agents uh, who are just agents of chaos, uh, and and some non-ideological people, people who don't particularly care about Trump one way or the other, uh, that they just see Trump as a convenient tool for their own particular oppositional politics. Um, but I think a big portion of them, I have no doubt, were in fact QAnon supporters because they had QAnon had done a brilliant psyop operation, disinformation operation that convinced people. I mean, like, how do you get someone like that Army veteran who got sh- or Air Force veteran who got shot and killed to do what she did? Why did she think a good consequence would come of this? It's only because the QAnon was such a sophisticated psyop that it convinced people that were smart and rational otherwise to do irrational and dangerous and self-destructive activities uh, because they convinced them that there was going to be a good outcome attached to it. What was the outcome they expected? Uh, the What the QAnon message boards were preaching was that if they took over the Capitol, this would allow the white hats and the good parts of the military and the intelligence agencies to arrest the bad actors. And, you know, people like Lynn Wood were preaching a version of this. Lynn Wood even encouraged the uh, the what happened on that day by some of the docu- by some of the his then tweets that he put up. And very interesting that Twitter let him trend even the weekend before and, and let him up that whole time before ta- only taking him down after it had this outcome. So the and then it seemed like everybody politically was on a script, you know, as if they were ready for it to occur and using the 
insurrectionist language. Um, and so I think that there is a reason, I think, but yeah, what the QAnon world convinced people of was that you were really secretly helping Trump by doing something that was actually very dangerous and destructive to Trump. Because the prior QAnon message board pitch had been to try to convince Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act, to uh, declare military rule, to declare military uh, runoff, runoff elections under military control, all of which are illegal. And we can now see, just for giving a speech, they want to grab him and throw him into, you know, in a prison somewhere. So the imagine what would have happened had he actually gone through with what QAnon, if he had somewhere taken the bait on any of that. So I think the, and notice the insurrection language common theme throughout that, and now the Democratic response to it. So I think it was always a PSYOP operation meant to distract, they targeted, QAnon targeted people that were are normally def- deferential to authority figures. So military, ex-military, law enforcement, uh, people that are deeply religious, it used a lot of that language and rhetoric. It asked them to take a public oath uh, to this sort of digital oath to be digital warriors and then converted them into real warriors. And I think there was a meaningful effort in the QAnon message board community to recreate the militia. And I think the Democratic Party thought that was really happening when it never was. In the end, you end up with more pranksters than you do revolutionaries uh, because there's just not enough support for this ever within Trump world. But uh, I attribute, without QAnon, I have no doubt that Capitol Hill riots never occur. Very interesting because they were separate and distinct from the rally. Correct. Completely separate and distinct. You notice most of them are wearing that, that are photographed inside some kind of Q clothing or Q oh, indicia. It, like what? Like the tattooed guy, the the guy with the horns? What, what kind of QAnon stuff were they wearing? Oh, just Q shirts. Some just, you know, the Trust the Plan Q shirts. Oh, really? Uh, you know, oh, Q, I guess yeah, I didn't see those. Little yeah, Q insignia. Um, and aside from the guy who called himself, I mean, the most visually memorable individual was himself. He called himself the QAnon shaman. Uh, so, uh, shaman. And so that gives you an idea for how much this was involved. What's amazing is, I mean, NBC and other people said right afterwards that this was all over the QAnon message boards they planned on storming the Capitol. The only, the, the people, only people did not know anything about that were some key Capitol police members did not know about that. And the, uh, and the president's team had no clue it was happening. So that tells you that somebody was failing to include critical intelligence in the reports they were giving to the president. And where does that come from? It comes from the politicized ranks of the FBI. Why wouldn't they tell him? Because he had to call out for more National Guardsmen and, and he would... Oh, absolutely. Yes. He would, one, he would have been... He would have said, suggested hypersecure. He, he would have skipped telling people to go to the Capitol. He would have said he would have skipped that all entirely. He would have shift changed gears and he would have uh, overrode the mayor and, and had a complete and told all what it is is they call it a high security event. So like what they do with an inauguration or any special event, frankly, whenever the Senate and the House are meeting together on a, and the vice president is present, that should always be a high security event uh, because of just risk of anybody. A foreign terrorist, anyone. I mean, they strike one building and you have, you know, that that uh, that TV show, uh, you know, happening all over again. So 
it was very rare for them when there was a petition to protest with a hundred thousand plus expected right next to the Capitol and the vice president and all the house and Senate members are meeting in the same day in the same building. It is extraordinarily, uh, extraordinarily rare for them not to consider that what they call a high security event. And yet they treated it like an everyday, they treated it to some degree like less consequential than an, uh, than an average day in, on the Capitol Hill. Did they do that because of the rally goers are never violent? Um, and if, but if they had the Q stuff and they knew that somebody was going to lay siege to the Capitol, you'd think that they would have done something. But maybe they were just of the belief that the rally goers were the ones who were uh, who were there and there was no troublemaker among the, the crowd. But they were wrong, obviously. Well, there. That's the the original story that came out was that Capitol Police, because actually Washington, apparently uh, D.C. media had been covering this. The Washingtonian covered it. So a day before the rally, they had reached out and said, "Look, there's all these talk on this message boards of someone trying to storm a group of people trying to storm the Capitol." And Capitol Police said, "Don't worry, we got it secure." Capitol Police's later explanation for that was that they had talked to the national FBI, and the national FBI said this does not even need to be treated like a normal security event. Now, Virginia FBI, New York FBI, and the NYPD said that didn't make any sense because they had told the national FBI be on high alert. And so, again, it's the politicized, the, the, the same people that were appointed and put in, you know, it's, it's Christopher Ray and his crew, all of whom are allies of Comey and his crew, who were the ones who misled both the president and Capitol Hill police about the risk that day. And but for them doing that, There wasn't enough people to breach the Capitol because the group of people that raided was a pretty small group uh, because they weren't part of the big group that was walking down uh, the street. And clearly they raided at a time when they were uh, worried that if the whole group got down there, they would be stopped from doing the raid, which, in fact, when larger groups came down there, they were telling people not to be violent, not to break in. I mean, Alex Jones was preaching that to people. So the uh, it, it everything about it, put it this way, if you wanted an event that you, you'd say – there, there's lots of blame to go around. This has all the indicia of that. You know, the guy being blamed is the guy that profits the least from it occurring and suffers the most, while the people being uh, hailed as victors are the people that had the most to gain from it occurring and were clearly in a position to do something about it and facilitated it by what actions they chose to or not to do. The electoral fraud issue was the reason everyone was gathered in Washington, D.C. The Electoral College was being tallied up and voted on. And, of course, Ted Cruz at all wanted to have an additional audit for 10 days to forestall that. So these are all the people there. Was there election fraud? I understand that you were one of the attorneys in Georgia. Uh, It seems like there likely was. What do you think? Well, I think the key issue, it's extraordinary how this has been re-scripted in the media narrative, that anyone who contested the election is now part of the uh, second Civil War illicit insurrection of 1860, it's now night of 2020. Um and so it's extraordinary how it conveniently allowed them to dodge accountability and responsibility uh, for contesting the election and resolving an election contest. Uh, the, I mean, I always saw the issue as not one of fraud, but one of was this a constitutionally conducted election or not? And that's about the electors clause. That's about whether or not the rules that were passed were those passed by the legislature, whether those rules were enforced consistently. 
and were they were their votes counted that uh, were not lawful constitutionally cast ballots, which means consistent with the rules established by the state legislatures in conformity with the electors clause. And that involved a multiple three levels of analysis. Did only constitutionally qualified people vote in the particular states? Did only as determined by the state legislatures? Did the method by which the ballots were uh, uh, cast, was that constitutionally done and consistent to the rules required by the state legislature? neutrally and equally enforced. And then third, were the votes counted in a manner ordained by the state legislature consistent to the constitutional requirement of the electors clause for a presidential election? And I thought in all three cases in the key swing states, that was not the case. And that the then the only second question was, were the number of votes that were either cast by people who are not qualified, cast by in a manner that was not qualified, or counted in a manner that was not constitutionally qualified, larger than the margin of victory in enough states that could change the electoral college outcome? And my view was yes as to all three of those. So the there were people that were not qualified to vote because they were dead in some cases, not residents in other cases, non-citizens in other cases, not yet of age in other cases, because they'd already cast a vote in another state in other instances, because they did not live in a physical domicile required by the particular state legislature in other cases. Then we had votes cast in a manner with mail-in ballots where the signature match checks, and we have signature match standards from nominating petitions. Those signature match standards uh, have previously uh, rejected uh, a rate of rejection rate 10 to 20 to 30 times higher than what happened in this election. And the only place we had a signature match audit was uh, a subsample in Arizona. And there the Democrats' own expert came back and said 11% of the signatures do not conclusively match. And that's 30 times higher than the margin of victory in the uh, for absentee ballots in the state of Arizona alone. And so, uh, and yet no state, no county, anywhere in the contested states would even allow an independent party observer to monitor the signature matches at any stage of the election process. And some people did not allow signature uh, checking anyway in Pennsylvania. That was the case. Uh, bragging about it. Correct. The Secretary of State precluded it. The, the Secretary of State in Michigan imposed absurd standards that basically watered down signature matches to a degree that would never be allowed in the nomination petition contest. Uh, context. So the and then third, there were clearly votes counted in an unconstitutional manner when party observers were excluded. I mean, since 2004, we've had the United States Election Assistance Commission, independent, nonpartisan committee formed by Congress that set out a bunch of standards for the canvassing and counting and recanvassing and recounting of votes in order to ensure transparency that requires it to be videoed so everybody can see it, the ballots to be published for everybody to witness, the signature matches to be publicly available so anyone can look at it and confirm it. All of those standards were violated. Even the OECD uh, international election monitors reported back to the OECD that America's elections did not conform to any set of objective standards for a transparent open election process due primarily to the exclusion of party observers and monitors at critical stages of the election process. That's stunning. And people called Donald Trump crazy for even thinking and, and saying it out loud. And there are 75 million people or so who believe that 
there should be some looking into this of this uh, investigation of these kinds of anomalies uh, because uh, this doesn't smell right. No, no. And I thought what was even worse about all this was like my argument with my with those who are on the opposite side was they said, at least allow there to be a meaningful hearing so people can have confidence that their voices were heard, regardless of the resolution. The Supreme Court is as responsible for what happened on Capitol Hill as anybody. Couldn't agree more. I mean, that Philadelphia, or that uh, Pennsylvania decision was outrageous. I cannot believe that uh, John Roberts did that. He set the table for that. Absolutely. The failure to take action prior to the election set the table for what occurred. And then the complete absconding from their constitutional obligations in rejecting a suit brought mm. by yeah, a Texas suit brought by 18 attorney generals Honest joined by over 100 members of Congress, members of the Senate, members of the state legislatures in every single one of the key st- the states and by large public interest organizations representing 75 million voters in a case the Supreme Court has both original and exclusive jurisdiction over. They're the only court that could hear the case, and yet they wouldn't even take it. Uh, it shows what a disgrace the Supreme Court has sadly become. It really has. John Roberts, honest to goodness, that guy is just more political than anyone con- conceived of at the time he was put in place on the Supreme Court. It's just stunning, frankly. Yeah, I mean, it's a function of the what I call the Bushite establishment, that the problem the president really had throughout this entire election contest process was the same problem he had during his entire tenure, which was that he had almost no institutional allies. Very few allies in the Senate, very few allies in the House, very few allies in the gubernatorial chairs, very few allies in executive positions in the states like Secretary of State, and as it turned out, not many allies even in the state legislatures. And and he never really had any allies, even amongst his own nominees to the judiciary, because they thanked Mitch McConnell for their position of power and the Federalist Society for their position of power, not the people and not President Trump. And we saw the consequences of that in many ridiculous rulings issued by judges who, if the president had been named Bush, would have done exactly the opposite of what we did, of what they did. And we don't have to guess that because we saw it happen in 2000. That, that's right. 2004. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're right. No, 2000. You're absolutely right. Well, it's a it's a it's an important case. We must do something about it. We're the court of last resort. We have to do this. And then they didn't do it for Donald Trump. It was just astonishing. Uh, I mean, you can hate somebody, uh, but you still have the rule of law you have to uphold. I mean, it's just so, so frustrating. Absolutely. What they really did was discredit the institution. Yeah, they did. It's a boomerang. Trump, I will say this, and let me just interject this, and I'd love to hear your take on it. I was glad Trump took up the irregularities in the voting system. And of course, the constitutional elements of them are most disconcerting, of course. But I thought of all the things, the guys just come in, he's, you know, rattled the house, he's broken things, he's he's made us all aware of the things that are a problem. Thank God he's doing this with the electoral system now. Maybe finally we'll get some, uh, we'll get some rectitude in that, pos- in that uh, area of the United States, uh, that, that particular institution. But but now, look, it's just now it's ended up with impeachment. You question the results of an election, we're going to get you. Well, especially if you uh, do so for the wrong person. So the uh, I mean, the same people leading the fight for indictment 
I mean, for, well, both indictment and impeachment, uh, participated in objecting to the election in 2016. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the hypocrisy and do what's extraordinary is the degree of gaslighting that the, that they expect the American public to not know the difference or to not to, to completely memory hole what happened for nine months leading up to the Capitol Hill riots. Almost no doubt the Capitol Hill riots also, if we're talking about culpable culprits that incited what happened, there's probably no more responsibility than the media and the Democratic politicians that welcomed and rewarded violence throughout the spring and summer by both BLM and Antifa. Uh, they are as complicit as anybody in the outcome that took place, because what they said was, you know what, if you take to the streets, if you burn, if you loot, if you destroy, if you commit violence, we will consider you the voice of the unheard. We will reward you with billions and billions of dollars. We will give you what you want in city, county, and state, and federal policies. We will uh, welcome it and put you on the front pages of the news newspapers and the front of the TV broadcast. So the that's how they behaved. Uh, during, and so that's what people saw. Now, what they didn't fully appreciate is that that's only for the left. But it's a uh, it, to try to gaslight them into forgetting that is really quite incredible. And I think it reflects what down deep what offended them was who it was that rioted, not the existence of a riot, but also that they rioted towards they, the privileged, genteel ruling class, that the the idea that some guy in a Viking hat looking like Buffalo Bill would take the speaker's gavel was just horror horrifying to them. That's a real crime. Burning down an entire city. eh? there's insurance for that. Right. But you sit in the speaker's chair. You take away the speaker's uh, lectern. You sit on her desk and put your feet up on it. That is apparently the, the horrid crime that requires us resurrection direct the sedition acts uh, and everything else in criminal conspiracy and life in prison. What they are offended and ashamed by is the degree to which the ordinary person no longer defers to them at all and sees them with the contempt that actually most Americans see, see them with. And they were shocked and horrified to witness that in live time. Oh, uh, uh, Tim Scott, senator from South Carolina, said this will lead to more hate and uh, deep to a deeply frustrated nation. I oppose impeaching President Trump. I mean, you're, he's saying what you're saying. This is going to lead to worse things coming. Oh, it, it's it's there. It's a sign of a decaying and dying empire that for one, for such a riot to even occur in the first place. But secondly, for them to respond with such over the top irrational, excessive reaction that's disproportionate and disparate to any other time in history. I mean, the la the people who actually physically opened up a machine gun fire on members of Congress got welcomed with pardons from Democratic presidents. People who've blown up the Capitol have been given pardons by Democratic presidents. So the idea that taking a lectern or sitting in a speaker's chair or sitting in the or putting the feet up on the speaker's desk or borrowing some mail somehow is the worst insurrection since the Civil War is is in a patently uh, absurd application, but what it reflects is some a group of people that are terrified of their own populace, a group of people that are completely out of touch with the peasantry, and their only response is more brutality, and that is almost always the sign of decline and fear, not the sign of a rising strength. 
You have mentioned Alex Jones on the right. I don't even know where that guy goes at this point on this political spectrum, but he's pretty far right as an example, exemplar of what can happen to people who are on the outs with big tech. Now it's happening with this cancel culture uh, writ large. What do you recommend people do? And what is your reaction to this wholesale cashiering, if you will, of President Trump? What I've been trying to tell people now for years is that what was happening to Alex Jones was an example and an exemplar, not an exception. But many of the people on the institutional right ignored it and pretend some even welcomed it and celebrated it. And now they're in total shock to discover that what happened to Alex Jones was, in fact, just an example, an exemplar, because now they're applying it to the president of the United States himself. And it's going to include the weaponization of every means of power the left has. This is going to include access to employment, access to education, access to platforms to speak on the public square, access to financial services, access to capital, access to banking, uh, access to almost anything that you need to survive in the modern world. And the left has been weaponizing it and building it for years, but they started out with Alex Jones to use as an example because they knew the complicit culpability of the institutional right would uh, encourage it and, and incentivize it and thereby establish the precedent for it to happen to them. Uh, it's extraordinary. These are, you know, the, the Republicans are like the kind of people who designed the guillotine for Rose Pierre and then were shocked that it, it ended up falling on their heads. I was, I, let me just interject here that I laughed out loud when uh, I think it was AOC talked about the fact that there were guillotines up uh, at the Capitol protest. I, I, I'll take her at her word, but they've been, of course, all over the uh, Antifa and BLM riots all since uh, last spring. It just made me laugh. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's you see with the I mean, AOC has kind of been exposed. He came up as a Bernie style populist millennial representative of the left with a Trump like skill with social media. It turns out that was entirely manufactured by her a couple of key aides who then she jettisoned. And now she's just a sort of a raging wokester imitating the uh, and uh, repeating the weakest rhetoric of the Twitterati on the left. And I, it, it's they, there really is not. Uh, a meaningful populist voice uh, in the House or the Senate with a broad following. There's some that are building it. Hawley's building it a little bit. Cruz, in certain ways, building it a little bit. And people like Matt Gates and Jim Jordan, in other respects, building it in the House. But nowhere the scale and scope of Trump. And the McConnell wing of the Republican Party really believes that they could just purge Trump, that they can purge Trumpism, and that the, the American uh, the country will go back to 2014. And they don't understand that's never happening. And in fact, it wasn't happening even then. They just didn't appreciate it. And that the populist rebellion is here, and it's here to last. And the only question is where they force that movement to go. Do they force it underground? Do they force it into a third party? Do they for force it into taking over the Republican Party? Uh, the only question is where it goes because it ain't, it, it isn't disappearing. And that's their great and grave mistake. And martyring Donald Trump will do nothing for the, the, their attempts to purge America of its populist impulse and instinct that dates to Thomas Paine and the American Revolution. They're out to ruin him. Uh, you've got just golf tournaments canceling, the city of New York canceling contracts. Uh, this is they're going for all of it. They're doing it right now while they have the the wind at their backs. 
And I think it's all about uh, the future, in part to make sure Trump doesn't run in 2024, but mostly to use him as an example. Uh, you know, years ago, Walter Appleman Williams wrote about the way in which American foreign policy often made an, would be obsessed with some small country, uh, Cuba, Panama, uh, because it wanted to make an example to the rest of the world. And that it was not about that country as much as the example that could be set through that country. And that's what they want to do with Trump. Because, you know, Trump's 75. He might not even be inclined to run again. He's going to be wealthy no matter what they do. He can go where he wants. He's he's on the back stage. You know, He's on the back nine of his life. He's really on the very back back three, probably. Um, and and he just had fun with all this. And mostly the it, so the punishment of him won't really have much effect, I think, on his mindset. Where will it ha- where what they want to do is they want to terrorize people to say, never again Ross Perot, never again Donald Trump. Um, and if you're thinking about it out there, and you're a billionaire, and you have some independent notoriety or fame or wealth. You better not stick your head up and, and, and play uh, anti-deep state populist like Donald Trump did or we'll ruin you and your family just like we did him. They're trying to use him as an example to terrorize everybody else. Totalitarianism. This is what Multnomah County in Portland did to Mike Strickland, your client, for the appeals case and his case that we've been chronicling on the Adult in the Room podcast for weeks and weeks now. And what do you think? Of, was he the canary in the coal mine? As to some issues, definitely. If people had been following his case, they would know how they're weaponizing the criminal justice system to preclude people from defending themselves. And the just like targeting the Proud Boys in New York did. And so it was meant to say you you don't have a right to self-defense. Um, and the and it was and so you could preview what would happen with the McCloskeys, what, what would happen with other people if you had known what happened to Michael Strickland. And the reason why we're taking it, you know, tr- it's a long shot, but taking it up to the U.S. Supreme Court a petition is at least to educate the Supreme Court so that even if he, they don't take this case, they may take a future case that the right of self-defense should be self-enshrined in the Second Amendment as well. It's implicitly recognized in the Hiller, Heller decision, which says the Second Amendment is about the right of self-defense, protecting a particular means of self-defense. But what does that? What does the right to bear arms mean uh, if you can't self-defend yourself with guns, uh, simply by the brandishing of them, as he did? It, it, it basically, you could completely negate the Second Amendment by saying, oh, you have a right to have a gun. You just don't have any right to ever show it to anyone or use it to defend yourself. Um, and that is effectively what they did in the Strickland case. That's why his case is so critical and, and important. And it definitely was a canary in the coal mine about if what uh, power do you have if you can't defend yourself from the state or defend yourself from any individual, uh, and the state will punish you if you try to defend yourself from an individual or the state. That's a deeply problematic place, and it's why the Second Amendment has to be read in the words it was written in. Uh, and somewhere, someday, someplace, hopefully the Supreme Court will take that up and, and clarify it, because without it, uh, individuals don't have the means. I mean, right now they don't have the means of uh, free speech, free religion, free association, either in lockdown jurisdictions or just due to the way private companies are monopolizing the public square in those particular spaces. Uh, and if they take away your Second Amendment rights, well, pretty soon you don't have many rights left at all that matter or are meaningful or impactful for the Constitution. Sounds depressing. But I know that there are fighters like you out there, Robert Barnes of Barnes Law, and I appreciate it. And I appreciate you coming on the Adult in the Room podcast today, and I hope we can do it again. 
Absolutely happy to be here. And my thing to people is that uh, you know the anytime we the Constitution has been under has faced a great crisis, within a few years thereafter it has rebounded stronger and better than ever before. So it's just people using their constitutional democratic means to restore faith in our constitutional republic, and it's up to all of us to make sure that takes place. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. This week's episode of the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft is brought to you by VictoriaTaft.com. Editing, mastering, advertising, technical support, and understanding for the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft is by 1A Cast. The music is gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for the case of Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by RC, and it is used by permission. Find RC on all social sites at Raps by RC. Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Instagram at Raps by RC. Imaging for the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft is by 1A Cast. Logo by Hageman Creative. Find him on Instagram. Photo of Victoria Taft is by Hilly Collective. The Adult in the Room podcast is produced by Flamingo Road Studios. All rights reserved.